following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Romans chapter 13, and uh, we were in this passage last week. We're going to kind of do part two today, uh, working through this challenging and probably sometimes controversial passage of Scripture. Uh, So let's begin by reading uh, Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. God's Word says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Probably one of the most fascinating figures of of 20th century church history is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And many of you have heard his name. And and unfortunately, he denied denied the inspiration of Scripture, denied salvation by grace alone, and and other orthodox doctrines. So so we wouldn't consider him to be an evangelical. But, But he was still a man of incredible conviction, devotion, and courage. And, uh, Bonhoeffer was a relatively young man. Uh, when he was a relatively young man, uh, he was a rising star in, in the German church and, uh, and moving towards being very significant. And, and that was all, though, when, when Hitler uh, was elected as Chancellor of Germany in 1933. And, and most of his countrymen were, were quickly swept up in all the, all the hoopla around Hitler and, and his movement. But Bonhoeffer immediately saw through the charade and, and immediately was an outspoken opponent of all that Hitler was saying. And he could have very easily left Germany right away. He was, uh, he was a very prominent man, could have had all sorts of teaching positions all over the world and, and done quite well, but, but he was committed to his country and decided to stay in Germany no matter what might come. And predictably, as he spoke out against Hitler and the Nazis, Uh, The Nazis clamped down on him and and forbade him from doing any writing or any speaking. He wasn't allowed to have any influence at all, but of course, Bonhoeffer didn't care, and he continued to teach, continued to write, continued to do what he could to to resist, and and he actually joined a a German resistance group uh, called uh, Aufweyer, and I'm probably not pronouncing that right, but uh, Aufweyer, something like that. And, uh, And he worked with them, and eventually... In 1943, he and the other members of this organization planned an attempt to assassinate Hitler. And uh, that plan was made into a movie several years ago called Valkyrie. 
And, um, and so they worked together to do this. And, and of course, we look back on it and we immediately think, that's a good thing. Get rid of Hitler. But Bonhoeffer understood that, that it was a, a complicated issue. He wrote at the time, before other men, he, speaking of the assassin, is justified by dire necessity. Before himself, he is acquitted by his conscience. But before God, he hopes only for grace. And he understood that taking a man's life, and particularly taking a ruler's life, is, is not a simple issue. And so, but he persevered, he believed it was right. Of course, their attempt to kill Hitler failed, and all the conspirators were, were arrested and ultimately executed. Now, I imagine most of us, and I would include myself in this, would say that it was right and noble for them to, to try and depose such an evil man who was bringing so much death and violence to the world. But Bonhoeffer understood that it was not a simple issue, that it was complicated. After all, our passage and several others in Scripture strongly urge us to submit to governing authorities. And so, and, and so that's because, as we saw last Sunday, government is a good gift of God. And so I urged us last week that, that because of that, we should embrace God-ordained authorities, that, that, that by the grace of God, our, our goal should be to submit and to honor the people that God has put over us. But I left a number of really important questions unanswered last week. So what exactly does submission look like? And when is it right to stop submitting and to resist? Did Bonhoeffer disobey this passage by conspiring against Hitler? Or is there more to the biblical ethic? Well, today I, I want to answer most of those questions. And there's no way, I mean, this is a massive subject, there's no way we can fully uh, finish it today, but, but, but I hope to, to answer those, some of those questions, and my basic challenge is to submit to human authorities under God. We submit to human authorities under God. So, so your first allegiance is always to God. He is the ultimate authority. He is sovereign, not the government. And most of the time, we honor God by obeying the authorities that He has placed in our lives. But occasionally, we honor Him by resisting them. And so I have three big questions that I want to answer today. And the first big question that we want to deal with is how do we submit? How do we submit? Now, now you probably don't want me to start there. You want me to jump right to resisting authority because that's what our hearts naturally lean towards. But I said last week that God is a God of authority. He's a God of righteousness and justice, and, and God has built into His creation structures for those things, and that is good. It is good that God has built authority structures into His creation. So, so this entire discussion has to begin with God. And folks, you, you can't really understand this text, and you can't obey this text rightly unless you see all of it with a Godward perspective. That is crucial. Now, you have to believe that God is in control. That He is sovereign. And you have to believe that He is good. And, and based on those things, you embrace submission. Uh, you, you have to embrace submission 
before you are ever ready to resist in a way that pleases the Lord. So, so how does God want us to submit? Well, first of all, he wants you to submit as to the Lord. Now, folks, that's vital because if you only obey an authority when that authority is worthy of, of your obedience and there's nothing that you can hold against them, then you're going to disobey a lot. And there's going to be a lot of chaos. And you should be thankful, even in your home, that, that your children don't have permission to disobey you any time you are imperfect as an authority. Because they would have the right to disobey you a lot. Every authority is fallen. Thankfully, God, not man, is the foundation of submission. And He commands you to look past the government's faults and every other authority's faults and to keep your focus on Him. Look at what he says again in verse 5. He says, It is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. Now, most people... Most people in our world would say that that if I can get by with it, it's okay. If I can't get caught, then I should do it. You know, but, but we are not most people. We are children of God. And Paul's reminding you in this verse that God sees what you do even if no one else does. And so we submit fundamentally for conscience sake. So God is with you. When you're driving, even if there are no police on the roads. And God is with you in the office, even if your boss is gone and there are no cameras. Kids, God is home even when your parents are not. And God is in the classroom, even when your teacher steps away. So be in subjection for conscience' sake. Because you want to please God. And then notice as well what he says in verse 6. He says, for because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Now, I, I think this verse is the hardest verse to stomach in the entire passage, all right? Because Paul says, first of all, that rulers, and he's not just talking about the king, he's talking about really every level of government. He says that the people whom God has placed in power, they are servants of God. And not just they are servants of God, he says they are doing the Lord's work. And so because of that, he tells you to pay your taxes. Now I doubt you've ever thought about that when you go to irs.gov or when you visit the DMV. That these people, these people who move so slowly are servants of God doing the Lord's work. It probably pains you to even think about that. But God says that government officials are doing the Lord's work when they maintain order, when they keep us safe, when they maintain the roads. All of that is for our good. It honors God. So he says, pay your taxes. Even if you disagree with the tax code, pay your taxes. And remember that you aren't just obeying the IRS. You are obeying God because God commands you to do that. The same goes for every other authority. And keep your finger here, but, but turn over to Ephesians chapter 5 because there's a theme here that is really important, not just as we think about the government, but, but every type of submission. Ephesians chapter 5, and in this section of, of the book, uh, Paul uh, talks about submission to various authorities, and, and there's an important theme that runs through this all. So Ephesians 5 verse 22, 
He says, wives, be in subjection to your own husbands as to the Lord. Then chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then look at what he says in verse 4. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And then verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And then verse 9. Masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no partiality with him. So, so in all those verses, what is he telling us? He is telling us that, that all of life is worship. And that when you submit to, an, to a God-ordained authority, that you are honoring the Lord. You are worshiping him. You do it as to the Lord. So worship God. Even in how you obey the authorities that God has placed in your life. Look past the, that, that human authority and the brokenness that he has. And see God. Trust him and obey, submit as to him. So, so as the Lord, secondly, we do this voluntarily. We do this voluntarily. So, so back in Romans chapter 13, verse 1 gives the central challenge of this paragraph. And it says to us, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And then verse 5 uh, again, uses the same verb when it says, therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection. Now, now the verb, the verb for subject or submit here in, in, in Romans chapter 13, it's the same verb he uses in Ephesians 5.22 for wives, that this verb is hupotasso, and it literally means to place or station yourself under. To place or station yourself under. So, we don't just obey the government when they force us to. Or, or when, if you don't do it, you're going to get in trouble and have to pay some sort of fine. No, God tells you to place yourself voluntarily or willingly under government authority. You do it willingly. So, and Jesus made the same point when, when the Jews asked him about the poll tax. And, and it's important to just frame this, this passage by saying you know, that, that the Roman occupation of Israel was unjust, right? I mean, these are the people of God. The Romans had no right from God to rule over them. And the poll tax was probably the tax that the Jews hated the most as demeaning them. And yet, they, so they, they come to him, they ask him, really intending to trick him, is it right to pay the poll tax? And Jesus replied, Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So Jesus commands you to voluntarily submit, even when it's not easy, even under difficult circumstances. Now, I do want to just note that the word submit, the idea of submission, 
is not as strong as the idea of obey. All right? So we obey God absolutely because He is an absolute authority. But human authorities only exist under God. And we'll talk about more, I'll talk more later about what that has for us. But, but for now, God is commanding you fundamentally in this passage to trust His sovereign will. This really is a matter of faith. And so He put your authorities in place. And so you trust Him. And you obey Him by voluntarily submitting. This really is a matter of faith. And again, as I said earlier, this passage makes no sense without God. And so, so don't grate under authority. Don't sneak behind their backs. Now, don't be like the kid who says, I'm obeying on the outside, but I'm not on the inside. No, trust God. Trust God. And voluntarily submit. And then the third way that we submit is practically or And really, verses 6 and 7 get to the nitty-gritty of what this looks like. It says, For because of this you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. So render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Now, I imagine that, that most of the Romans bristled against what Paul is saying in these two verses. Because the Roman government was corrupt. And in fact, uh, just a few years prior to this, in, in A.D. 49, Claudius Caesar had kicked all the Jews out of Rome. Every Jew had to leave the city for a time, I, I believe until he died. And, and, and the reason, almost assuredly, the reason why he kicked all the Jews out of Rome was because of conflict within the Jewish community over the person of Christ. So it seems that there became an argument within the, the, Rome, the Jewish community there in Rome over, over whether Jesus was Messiah or not, and it got heated enough that, that, that Claudius Caesar just kicked all the Jews out of Rome. Now, you can imagine how traumatic of an experience that must have been for the Jewish Christians in the city. You know, all of a sudden, one day, you, you have to leave your home, you have to leave your job. You know, they're not giving you like a stipend to help you get settled somewhere else. It's just, see you later. And, and so that was the government under which these people lived. And as well, you know, the Caesars were not famous for their tax cuts. You know, they didn't campaign on, you know, we're going to lower taxes, lower the tax rate, all that stuff. No, instead, uh, the Roman historian Tacitus tells us that right around the very same time that Paul wrote the book of Romans, that there was major unrest in Rome over heavy taxation. In fact, the city was on the verge of riots over the heavy taxation of Nero at the very time that Paul wrote this letter. And yet in the midst of that, Paul tells the church to stay out of it. Don't get caught up in all that. Pay your taxes. As well, he says, pay your customs. Now, customs here uh, would be uh, some sort of of uh, a tax on goods and services. So it'd be parallel to, to us paying sales tax or tolls or levies. And he says, you need to pay them, even if you don't like them. And then the last two items he mentions in verses 7 and verse 7 are fear and honor. Now, those are probably the hardest of all of these, especially when you don't like an authority. You know, there's times where 
Or you do what you have to do because you, you have to, but you don't like it. And you don't like the person that's telling you to do what you have to do. Now, to be clear, God is not saying that you should love every leader or that you just ignore all their evils, right? I mean, just look sometime at the book of Revelation and how it describes, uh, how it describes the government of Antichrist. Or look at the Old Testament and, and look at how the prophets critique the, the kings of Assyria, the kings of Babylon, and even how they go after the kings of Israel. You know, it's not like you know, they just say nice, kind things and never critique them. No, they are very strong. But, but the same God who condemns Nebuchadnezzar as a terribly wicked man and says that God will judge Babylon ruthlessly, said in Daniel 4.17 that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom He wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. So even the evilest ruler is there by the sovereign will of God. I mean, Joe Biden is our president by the sovereign will of God. Gavin Newsom is our governor by the sovereign will of God. And every other leader in power, the same thing is true. And so even if they may not be worthy of your respect as individuals, God is. And God commands you to honor them and to fear them. Now, that doesn't mean you can't campaign for their removal or call out their evil because the prophets did that plenty. But there is a line that no Christian should ever cross. Now, I mean, for example, in the last few years, it has become pretty common and pretty normal for, for people to, to use very foul language in talking about our leaders or, or to you know, thinly veil it behind some slogan. And you see the memes, you see the flags, you see the shirts. And, and, and God says that that is wrong. That we are to fear the king and honor the king. I mean, we, and, and fundamentally, we must always behave like we really believe that God is sovereign, holy, and wise. We believe that. And, and so, we, we are not... As Christians, a people of fear and anxiety. We are not people who are consumed with this world. We live for eternity. And we trust God with our lives today. And so we have to stand on principle. So, so God tells us in this passage to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And to do so as unto God. So trust God. Obey the law. Be respectful. And in doing all of it, show the world the transforming power of the grace of God. That we are different by His grace. And show the world the radical difference that your faith makes. We've emphasized all year transforming faith. And one of the best ways that you can demonstrate transforming faith is in this very area. By showing that you really believe that God is on the throne. So, so, so we've talked a lot about submission, but, but there's also a limit to submission. But, but identifying that line, well, that's where it gets hard, right? And so the second major question I want to talk about today is when do we resist? Now, now I'll just tell you up front, this is a massive subject, and, and frankly, it's a sensitive subject, right? I mean, coming off of 2020 and 2021 and everything that went on with, with COVID restrictions, you know, people get fired up about this and 
passionate about this. It's, it's pretty, pretty near in our, in our past. And it's a very complicated subject. There's, there's no way in the time that we have today that, that we could fully develop everything that's, that's related to this. But what I want to do is I want to give you seven questions to help you think through when is it appropriate to resist and how. So first of all, would I disobey God by submitting? So Peter states the matter bluntly when, when the Sanhedrin tells him to stop preaching the gospel. He says in Acts 5.29, we ought to obey God rather than men. If you have to make a choice, you always obey God. And as well, when, when Nebuchadnezzar told uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to bow down to the idol, to, to his glory, they say to the king, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So no human authority is above God. And if you ever have to choose between a a clear command and expectation of God and what a human authority tells you to do, you always choose God's law because God stands above that authority. I don't think there's probably any controversy about that. Secondly, does neighbor love demand it? Now, the clearest biblical biblical example of this is in Exodus chapter 1. And so, uh, there in Exodus chapter 1, the the Pharaoh, Pharaoh commands the midwives to kill all the Hebrew infant boys as soon as they are born. And of course, the the midwives, they, they disobey the command. Why? Because murder is wrong. And because these babies are people. And so, love and justice demanded that they disobey Pharaoh's command. And so it is never right for a Christian to be an agent of injustice and cruelty. Never. So, for example, I mean, the the people in Europe who protected Jews during the Holocaust, no matter what the government said, that was a right thing to do, to stand for justice and, and and to protect people from cruelty. You know, on the other hand, the German soldiers who were just following orders, when they were doing all that cruelty, that was terribly sinful. You know, uh, it'd be the same today for a Christian doctor to perform an abortion. So, so Christians need to be people who love life, who honor the image of God in man, and stand for, for love of neighbor and justice. So, so I doubt, though, there's, there's probably no controversy about those two ideas there. But a lot of issues get murky very quickly. So, so another question to consider is, is this a necessary fight? Is this a necessary fight? And, and, and just to, to give us a, an illustration of this, uh, here's a, a passage from ba- Matthew about Jesus. And so it says there, when they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs, or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? And when Peter said, From strangers, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. Now, now the context here, this story is about the temple tax, all right, which does make a significant difference. So, so 
uh, the Sanhedrin would collect this tax to support the work of the temple. And, and what Jesus is saying here is that he is the son of God the Father. And that fathers do not collect taxes from their sons, they collect them from citizens, subjects. And so as the son of God, Jesus is exempt from paying the temple tax. So does Jesus make a fuss and say, no, I'm the son of God, I don't have to do this. No, he recognizes that this is not a hill worth dying on. This is not a fight that I need to fight, and so I'm just going to do it, even though it's not necessary. You know, so, so let's get practical here. I mean, let's say you know, it's, it's 2020, 2021, you need to go into the DMV and do business, and they tell you to enter the DMV, you must put on a mask. Now, you might think masks are dumb. You might think they don't do any good. You might think that's a terrible rule. But is it really a hill worth dying on? Is it necessary to offend in that way? And so, so Christians need to be discerning and be careful, thoughtful about the battles that we choose. And Jesus sets that example for us in his word. Another question to consider. Am I declaring God's sovereignty or my autonomy? Now, Daniel chapter 6 gives a fascinating example of disobedience. So, you know the story. Uh, Darius, King Darius, outlaws all prayer except to himself for 30 days. Now, now that's a, this is an, it's an interesting one because, because Daniel could have easily talked himself out of or talked himself into obeying that command, right? I mean, thou shalt pray three times a day is not one of the Ten Commandments. The Bible doesn't actually specify how often you have to pray. So, so Daniel could have said, well, you know, 30 days isn't that long. I'll just not pray for 30 days. Or, or Daniel could have said, you know, I'm just going to go in my closet and pray really quietly so that no one can hear me. But Daniel knew that people were watching him. And he understood that, that if he did not continue to pray as he always did, that, that, that all those people would understand him as making a statement that Darius ruled over his heart in a way that God didn't. And so Daniel protested the decree. He opened his windows for all to see, and he prayed to God like he always did. And what is he doing? He is making a statement that God is sovereign over my life, not King Darius. And God approved. And we know that because a few verses later, God protects him from the mouth of the lion. And God approves when we boldly declare his sovereignty. You know, so, so for example, I mean, missionaries are called of God. We are called of God as a church to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And it doesn't matter if some nation has laws against sharing the gospel or says that missionaries are not allowed into their country. We have an obligation from God to take the gospel everywhere. And so no government can tell us not to preach the gospel and not to send missionaries into foreign lands. So, so we always need to be clear that God is sovereign over my life, no human authority. Right? But, but just make sure, as the second part of that question states, that you are declaring God's sovereignty, not your autonomy. 
You know, God is not glorified when you protest every dumb rule. Because you're not actually accomplishing anything for Him in that point. So, so when your attitude is, no one's going to tell me what to do. You are not glorifying God. You dishonor Him. So, boldly offend when, when God's glory and God's sovereignty is at stake. Otherwise, don't be difficult. Don't be rebellious. And then a closely related question to that is, am I advancing God's purpose or my own? Now, the book of 1 Peter is a wonderful uh, just side, or, or cross-reference to our passage. 1 Peter what was written for a group of churches that were facing unjust, heavy persecution. When you, when you read through 1 Peter, it's clear these people are suffering for Jesus. So if anyone had a right to just be done with authority, do what they want, it was the readers of 1 Peter. But notice what Peter says to them in chapter 2. He says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. So what's he saying to them? He's saying your Christian witness comes first. That you need to be clear about Jesus and how you behave. And so the gospel always comes before my personal rights. And later he warns in chapter 3, he says, keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. So, before you disobey some authority, before you disobey the government, ask yourself, whose purpose am I advancing? Am I advancing my purpose or God's? Will doing this draw people to Jesus? Or, or will doing this distract them from the truth of who Christ is? Now, that's not to say, right? That's not to say that you can never take a political stand. That, that you shouldn't fight for freedom, uh, for justice, for righteousness in our government. I mean, all those are good things. And, and all those things come back to loving your neighbor well, right? So, so, so we want a, a just and righteous and, and, and godly society because that serves all people well and because it gives us freedom to, to advance the gospel. So, so I'm not saying that, that none of those things don't ever enter the picture. But, but just make sure that you approach every issue with a heavenly mindset. That you are thinking with eyes of faith, not eyes of fear. Are you honoring God's purpose in this? Or are you serving yourself? And then another really important question. Is, is the government usurping authority where it has none? Now, this is, this is important because, because there are different authorities that God has built into creation. Let's think specifically here, government, church, and home. And, and, and it's important to recognize here that, that God hasn't just placed the government over every sphere of, of those other two things, church and home. So parents, God has given you the responsibility to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. 
It is your job to raise your kids to know and love Jesus. He did not give that job to the government. And we are all thankful for that. And as well, um, and, and as well, the Lord has commanded the church to make disciples. He didn't give those responsibilities to the government. And so when the government, we, we are not obligated to obey the government when they wrongly try to assert their authority in us doing the things that God has given us the authority to do. Now, I'll be, I want to be clear here, all right, that there are boundaries to that. Right? So, so God has given the government the, the responsibility to protect life. It's their job to, to, to care for people, to create safety in society. So, you might not agree with me on this, and that's okay. But, but I think it was absolutely right for churches, at least initially, to, to want to honor temporary COVID restrictions. Right? Because the government, frankly, knows better than pastors do how to protect life. And that's their responsibility. That's their obligation. So, so it is good for us to, to want to defer to that and honor that, at least for a time. All right, but on the other hand, the government has no authority for how we worship God or how we make disciples. You know, so, so when they said, don't sing, well, at that point, they're asserting themselves into our worship in a way that is just not their prerogative. And so they cannot tell us how to worship God or how to make disciples. You know, parents, God has given you the responsibility to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, now God has given the government the responsibility to protect life. So if you abuse your kids, they have the authority to arrest you because it's their job to protect life. But, but they cannot tell you not to follow biblical discipline patterns. And they cannot tell you not to teach your kids a biblical view of sexuality because that is not their prerogative. So, so, so we need to think about those things and, and be careful. All right, and, and, and understand how God has laid out those authorities, what responsibility God has given to them, what responsibility God has given to you, and, and, and honor all of that and think carefully. And then, a seventh question is, am I clinging to the foolishness of the cross or a myth of respectability? So, consider Jesus here, all right? I mean, Jesus didn't walk around looking for a fight, looking to irritate people. I mean, he was solely focused on the Father's will. And if he had to break a custom, or he had to dodge some human authority to do the Father's will, then he really didn't care. I and mean, he was focused on what God the Father had told him to do. And so he didn't stress about every little offense. He said... Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And so Jesus did not conduct his ministry under any delusion that somehow, some way, he could do the Father's will and the world would just think he was wonderful and great. He understood that that was not going to happen. And I bring that up because I've spent most of the last two sermons pushing us uh, pushing back on our desire to, to be disobedient and to rebel. But I also want to be very clear that, that being nice and being compliant 
it's not always best. Now, you can be so focused on not offending people that, that you can hide the gospel under a basket, right? And that's not a good thing. We want to make the gospel clear. And in an unbelieving world, no matter how hard you try to be unoffensive and to not get people upset at you, the world will get mad at the gospel. You know, for example, just, just this week, uh, Heidi and I watched a, uh, a documentary on missionary John Chow. And uh, it's on National Geographic. If you have Disney+, Plus, uh, it's on there. It's called The Mission. And, um, and so in 2018, John Chow gave his life trying to take the gospel to, to a remote island south of India. And uh, this island was protected. You're, you're not actually, people are not allowed to go to this island because uh, the government had wanted to keep them protected, keep them safe from any sort of Western or outside influence. And it's fascinating watching this, that, that John Chow, there was nothing that should have been offensive about this guy. I mean, he, he, he was sincere. He wasn't actually, he didn't want to go there and teach them to be Americans. He was very thoughtful about wanting to, to create an indigenous church in this island. He just wanted to love the people and share the gospel because that's what Jesus told us to do. But National Geographic, they wanted to paint him as an arrogant, radicalized fool who, who was there to, uh, to, to just uh, ruin this tribe and, and to turn them into Westerners. They were very critical of him. And, and again, I mean, the only thing offensive about John Chow was his zeal for the gospel, but that was enough. His zeal for the gospel was enough that they didn't like him. So don't be a jerk, all right? Don't be a jerk, but don't buy the myth of respectability. The gospel is foolishness to men. So focus on honoring the Lord. Focus on making His glory known and standing for truth. And if that brings you into conflict with the world, then so be it. Be a fool for the cross. I mean, your conviction at that point will, will do you far more good than, than just being compliant ever will. We need to be clear about the things that matter. All right, so, so yes, there, there is a time to resist authority. And when that time comes, you need to be bold and you need to be strong. All right, but, but remember that your default should be submission, not rebellion. So always be thoughtful, be wise, make sure that you're guided by God's priorities, not your own. All right, but, but let's suppose that, that you do, you go through a thoughtful process of prayer and, and Bible study, and, and you decide that, that you need to resist. How do you do that? Well, one last question we want to answer is how should we resist? And just three thoughts here, very briefly. First of all, you need to do so righteously. Now we've talked about this. You don't have to change the world, but you do have to obey the Lord. And if you feel the need to resort to ungodly behavior to resist an authority, if you feel like you have to win at any cost, then, then you, have to, you have begun to believe that you are sovereign, not God. And so remember that as election season approaches us. You know, at the end of the day, God is in control, not us. I mean, we should, we should campaign, we, we should be involved, we should stand for righteousness, 
But, but God is going to determine who gets elected. At the end of the day, not us. And so fight for righteousness, fight for justice and truth, but never compromise your faith. Closely related, as much as possible, be peaceful. Now, of course, there's a limit to that, right? Like if someone's trying to kidnap your kid, you don't stand there and have a conversation with them, right? I mean, you, you resist, maybe very aggressively. But when I bring this up, because you know, in our culture, protest is increasingly becoming synonymous with riot. And, and God, and, and when you think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I mean, they just took a stand. They, they, I mean, trumpet sounds, everyone bows down, and they stand. That's all they did. You know, Daniel, Daniel, all he did was open his windows and pray like he always did. And, and so they took a bold stand. They took a bold stand that potentially, I mean, from a human perspective, should have cost them their lives. Apart from a miraculous deliverance of God, those four men would have died. They took a bold stand, but they didn't compromise their convictions. And so you can stand for truth without resorting to slander and lies. Again, Peter said, make sure that if you are going to suffer, suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And then a third just idea here is that you need to resist wisely. So Jesus told his disciples before he sent them out to preach, he said to them, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. And and as our culture becomes more hostile to Christianity, we're going to need to heed that challenge more and more. So, So don't be a fool, all right? Don't be a moron. Don't invite hostility against yourself that that you don't need to take. Choose your battles carefully. But once you make your choice, stand by the grace of God. Be wise. Be innocent, but shrewd and wise. So in sum, God is calling us in this passage to submit to human authorities under God. And aren't you thankful that a sovereign wise and good God rules over everything. It's a scary world. It is a very scary world. And without God, this world is terrifying. It is overwhelming. You know, I, I'm sure you know, some of you, you sat and you watched your TVs back in 2020 and it's like, what in the world is going on? It's a scary world. But, but don't forget that God is there and God is in control. And Jesus won the victory on the cross. And He is coming again to bring peace on earth and goodwill toward men. You know, the song says that He is coming to make His blessing known far as the curse is found. Jesus is going to fix it all. So I don't have to live in fear. I don't have to live my life always worried about what's going to happen. I don't have to try and carry the weight of the world on my shoulders. Because no matter what happens to me in this life, I know what I have in eternity. And so you can trust God. You can be holy. You can be different by His grace. And you can make a difference. You can make an impact for eternity. Until the day that Christ calls you home, or that He comes again. 
So honor him. Submit to authority under God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are sovereign over our lives. Lord, we would be lost without that assurance. And thank you as well for the promises we have that you are coming again and you will fix all that is broken. And so, Lord, I pray that faith, faith and submission to you would shape how we think about all these things. Lord, give us courage. Give us wisdom. Help us to love the things that you love, to hate the things that you hate. And God, help us to honor you. Help us to be as shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. And to God, give us grace for whatever you have, that we would please you, that we would honor you, that we would glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen.